Hello fellow sports photographers. My name is Dean Mukteropoulos, or All Sports Snapper, and I'm a sports photographer working full-time for Getty Images. Welcome to the Photography Philosophy Podcast, where I have open discussions with the world's best sports photographers. This will give you an insight behind the long lenses from the men and women who fill your back pages, websites, and magazines with amazing sports imagery. This 15th episode is a continuation, or part two, of episode 14, where I have deviated from my normal interview system and will be speaking about my experiences shooting the 2016 Dakar Rally. This episode will be continuing right from the middle of the event. The Dakar is one of the most spectacular events on the sporting calendar, and it pushes everyone involved to breaking point, as you would have gathered from listening to the last show. And we continued with me injured, fatigued, usually hungry, but enjoying my adventure. I hope you enjoy the show. 11th of June, 6am and on the road again. Arriving at the photo point, the local barbecues and parties look like they've been going all night long. Out of all the early arrivals, El Gacho is the most impressive. El Gacho means the cowboy. A man dressed in traditional Argentinian cowboy outfit with laced up high boots, khaki colored trousers and shirt, while a knotted scarf and brown leather hat is topped by a suede leather tasseled chaps. He, along with his group, are in a festive mood. They chat with Pablo, who comes back five minutes later saying we can have Argentinian steak for lunch there. But I don't think we'll have the time considering how much work and how many riders and drivers we've got coming through. Felipe and I have an hour before the first bikes are due and taking only the minimal kit of a 1635-2470-7200 with the two bodies, tripod and remotes, and um, maybe into the one kilometer road between these beautiful colored canyons, and of course, painkillered up for my aching toe, I limp through the valley, and the road is narrow with fine orange-brown soft dust. Due to my injury, I will leave the climbing and stick to ground level. But this location being pretty as it is, my frustration doesn't last long as there's plenty of shots to be had. This location has been used in the past and the majority of photographers who have shot this event are motorsport and Dakar regulars. So I spend most of my time nodding and saying hello to the many of them. But not wanting to sit next to any of them, I try to find and get some different images. I get through the walk. Um, with not too much difficulty and on exiting the valley stage I turn back into the valley section there's just a massive black faced wall of shadows and I'll shoot um, exposing for the light with the shadow being the, um, the background. The two main reasons I don't stay in the valley like everyone else one is that every other photographer is there already and two is the light. The valley at the moment is all in shadow the sun is still very low So when doing a wide shot, which you would do because of the beautiful setting, exposing for the vehicles, the top of the valley rocks would be overexposed from the rising sun and the sky would be white, so um, not the rich blue it actually is. So I put the remote on a tripod on a 1635 and pre-focus the part of the road I'm guessing they'll ride through and I go and sit on a little fork in the road exiting this this section with a 7200 to do a, a nice tighter shot of the cars. The remote camera is exposed, of course, to the morning sunshine, showing the huge rock face with the little bike at the bottom of the frame. My tight shot has an orange-brown road at the bottom of the frame with a black wall of shadow behind them, 
and also you're getting a lot of the dust um, and rocks flicking up as they as they ride past. The shot, of, I think, um, you can be the judge if I put it when I put a link to it, um, works well, or you'll see it in the slideshow, um, as the leading bikes come through, and I capture the sprayed debris of the rear wheels um, shooting into the pitch black background, giving a minimal yet energetic look to the pictures. I stay here for a while, and as the sun rises, the cars are due soon, so I pack up my kit and head off into the valley. Patches of light are hitting the road now, so that's what I want. I now put my remote lower and look up to the rock face as the colors of the rocks and the blue sky work well with the brightly colored vehicles. Tenth today, isn't it? Tenth today? Tenth the date? Eleventh. Eleventh. Okay, I lost track of days. Eleventh. And we're in a canyon? And, and what's the closest city? Nowhere. Cafayate. Cafayate. depending on what part of uh, Spain or Argentina you're from. I switch between the 70 to 200 and the 2470 on the cars and trucks, take adv advantage of them breaking through the shadows here and there. The remote I set up and I leave around the corner firing it with a pocket wizard so it has a completely different angle to the one I'm getting on my handheld camera major part of this day is the fine dust. Clothes, cameras, lenses and me are covered in this fine orange dust. I want to try and keep changing lenses to a minimal as the sensor is already looking filthy, let alone with this fine dust as well um, pulsing through the, um, through the valley here. When shooting above 5.6 on, on either body of this camera now, um, the dust or other crap is of so obvious on this sensor so the usual 5 to 20 seconds it takes me to edit each photo becomes 30 to 40 seconds. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're sending thousands of images over the space of a week, it adds up. On exiting the valley, um, the four hours or so Felipe and I had been inside there, uh, the crowds outside had grown uh, quite a great deal actually. Um, I'm, again, I'm still amazed how enthusiastic and how well supported the Argentinian Bolivian fans um, uh, show how much support they show for this event. I see the trucks approaching in, just before they get into the valley. Um, it's a dry riverbed, but they're bouncing over this small jump and kick up a large cloud of um, red dust, which obviously I can't resist and have to take a few more shots. But I do have from today's shoot a lot to edit. So we head back to the bivouac and enough eating dust because that's all I seem to be tasting in my mouth at the moment. On the way back to the bivouac, we stop at a restaurant to try and get some of the leaders' images out on their Wi-Fi. Um, of course, this is um, the middle of nowhere, Argentina, so the slow upload speed gives me a chance to look around. Um, and then one of the shops, uh, a local man is just sitting down there um, he's not part of the show or anything, he just sits down in a chair and starts playing music 
Este horno anda cansado, anda queriendo una canción Cansado de que le ardan por adentro el corazón Cuando se apaguen las brasas, mi gato se adentrará Puede hacer que en sus entrañas sienta un bombo retumbar Ay, hornito tristecito, que viene sembrando panes Con forma de guanaco, con alma de chicharrón Para cambiarles la angustia a los chiquitos con hambre Pueda que con este gato se le amance el corazón Dos. Top pilots and best images sent. We have a few hours to drive to make it to our next destination, Belen. And it, today it's very hot again, which is making me a bit more uncomfortable with the foot, which is uh, bandaged and uh, and not easy to walk on. The media center when we arrive in Belen is an old sports hall, and the first order of business is to get out the rest of the images, which, thanks to the half-decent internet here, which only fails a few times less than normal, and about three hours in of editing, and I'm done. Because of the great location today, I shot a lot more than normal. I also got a lot of the pilots and truck drivers that I had um, not had a chance to get earlier because of the constant moving, and obviously with our international client base they'll have more uh, to choose from while the last of these images are sending i find a place outside to set up a tent which is not covered in ants and camping can be fun but at the moment it's becoming a chore here i have a i have to give my kit a quick clean because um, with some of the baby wipes and um, some of the air blowers and brushes that i have because like i mentioned in the previous episode if uh, baby wipes can clean a, a backside then they can do wonders on a on a camera kit first i shower in the cold water shower but in this temperature it's not too bad um, as I have a thick layer of fine orange dust um, which I mentioned before and then it's a visit to the medical tent where my friends um, will be replacing the bandage on my toe then it's a quick dinner and fatigue is set in so it's time to pass out wearily we coordinate tomorrow's photo point and it's less than an hour away but still um, a 7 a.m. expected arrival of the first bike which means we will leave just after 5 a.m. A massive five hours sleep tonight. Can't wait. 12th of Jan. First bike, Stuart, 7.55, so we're going there for the nice light in the morning. And you can hear bikes. There's a people already up and about. A lot of people are still sleeping. Military tents right next to us. They're already headed off to their military choppers to get ready for the day's uh, activities. Generators going on all around us and uh, the media center has been open all night for people to work as well. It's clear morning and after a successful day shooting yesterday, I'm less optimistic today with the dry riverbed as our chosen destination. The four photo points we had a choice of are all similar and don't offer much especially considering what we had yesterday. It's some off-road driving to get there, and of course, some locals are there, with deck chairs under trees waiting for the show to arrive. We usually get coordinates the previous afternoon, so how the locals seem to get there, um, know the locations um, before we do, and have more information about the race than we do, I'm not so sure, but they're always helpful. 
usually, sometimes, depending on if we ask, of course, um, offering us ways to get um, to places easier or other locations which they think might make, make better photos. The photo point itself we, um, we uh, stopped at today is boring. So we head up the section of, river, of dried riverbed that we think where the riders will first appear. 7am comes and goes and still no riders. Half 7 and we're starting to worry that we've walked up the wrong section of the course. Almost an hour into the day and no one else is around. So we've got no other photographers um, and where we are there's no other spectators either for once. So I've set up remote on some uh, a scattering of smooth riverbed rocks in the foreground. And then we hear the familiar noise of the screaming motorbike engines with the quick gear changes. I consider myself to be a patient man, but um, Felipe, I don't think he'll mind me saying this. My Spanish friend is uh, not so much. So as we hear the first and second bike go past the corner, we assumed Felipe looks at me and says, we're in the wrong place. But I say, just wait. He starts to run, and as he does, the sound of bikes braking heavily and sliding in the, in the soft sand or riverbed sand, as I hoped it would happen, the riders had missed the turn. It's common um, on the Dakar, especially for the first bikes or car, to miss a turn, as this is not a normal race. The pilots are given directions on a rolling sheet of paper, which I can only describe as, turn left at large rock, go past railway tracks. Once you pass the dip in the road, turn at second left. And so these are the type of instructions that are hard to follow at the best of times, let alone when you're pushing your chosen machine to its limit. That's why leading this race is all the more impressive because once a few bikes or cars make a path, the other bikes that are following, you know, even the second place bike, can follow. Um, obviously, it's not always a good idea, but you know, if you're a bit confused, um, then you can just follow the the tracks that you have in front of us, in the front of you. Um, so again, sometimes the first bike might make a, a a wrong turn here and there. So we were in the right spot, and uh, the trees uh, we used trees in the foreground um, with the remote and the wide angle lens to shoot tighter action on the 7200. As the riders come through. We keep shooting and walking up the riverbed with a different background or foreground in each shot. I find an old fallen tree which has been washed down the river during the winter months and it has great lines and character. So I set up the remote there with that in the foreground in the frame. Leaving it there for quite a, uh, an hour or two I'd say. Um, later on I found out that I had knocked the focus as I was leaving on this remote so all the images were unusable which was frustrating. After about three hours of walking and shooting um, on this section, um, we radio Pablo and Danny and they drive the stretch uh, we walked up and pick us up to go to another photo point. It's getting close to 1pm now. Um, it's very hot and dry, um, but our journey is cut short. A normal looking turn in the river sees the 4x4 left side sink in and we are bogged. The plan for another location is now out and we spend the next few hours unsuccessfully attempting to remove our transport from the sludge. Dirty and tired, we are running out of ideas. Then what I can only call um, a gang of Argentinians on quads, six of them, all in impressive new riding kits and high-end quad bikes, stop to offer and help. With the extra manpower pushing, we are out in minutes and very grateful for their help. The day's photography is over though. We get back to the bivouac for a second night and it's almost 4pm 
as the traffic in and around the camp is packed with fans. Temporary market stalls have been set up lining the road to the entrance and every tree and elevated point again has a person on it. All manner of food, clothing, sunglasses and drinks can be purchased here. I would hazard a guess to say that there are tens of thousands of people just in the two kilometer stretch leading up to the bivouac. It's it's crazy, literally crazy. I, I have never seen anything like it just for a walk, uh, an entrance to a, an event. Finally, we get in and start the usual process. Edit, sending images, but the internet is slower than normal and our IT guy on location tells me that the whole city internet is down, which I or anyone else he tells don't believe for a second. The selection of images is easy enough, um, but the edits is a bit more as the dirty sensor is adding a bit more time as does the captioning as it always does. I send 125 pictures from the day, which is a lot from not a great location, but these are just plain stock images of pilots, which I have not had a chance to shoot over the past few days. Usually we move the night before due to the long drives on dangerous roads and um, this is usually earlier than I would like and today is no different. Um, Our drivers both need to stay awake and focused on these treacherous roads and there is only so much coffee and Red Bull that can be purchased by all of us and consumed. So when I was close to finishing my edit, the picture is not all sent because of the slow upload but my edit is done. I post some of my favorite pictures to Twitter Um, which uh, some of you might have seen. Um, Then our drivers come in to talk about the tomorrow's desert stage. The last few years, the desert stage has made some of the best images, especially in Chile, which we'll not be covering this year. So today, this year is only um, Argentina and Bolivia, but the Chile stage over the last few years had made my favorite images. And I think I've put about maybe three of them in my best uh, 10 pictures from last year. Uh, This Uh, year it's the only sand landscape um, tomorrow so it's a four-hour drive and we decide instead of waking up at 3 a.m to do the drive um, we'll do the drive tonight and camp in the desert near the photo point we stop on the way in a small town to get some dinner and breakfast um, for the campsite the drive is easy enough and of course the local Dakar fans are there already camping barbecuing and drinking I'm a bit unsure about heading off into the dunes at night and straight away we get stuck in soft sand. But once we got out and set up the tents and my concerns of um, being in the middle of the desert are long forgotten because the star-filled sky and bright Milky Way is astonishing. Living in the Netherlands and a densely populated country with lots of light pollution, I forgot how wonderful it was just to stare at the stars. The familiar sight I had in my home country of Australia is clear as well. The constellation crux, or as we call it, the Southern Cross. This job takes me to some places I never dreamed of, and camping in an Argentinian desert, eating empanadas, cheese, bread, salami, is definitely, actually, and I must add, drinking some local red wine, but not that much, Steve, don't worry, is on my never dreamed of list. Things I would never, never have dreamed of in in a million years doing as a sports photographer. So yeah, a spectacular end to another long day. As we talk, on the horizon we can see lightning storms. Above we have stars and we have like a firework display almost looks like in the distance of lightning. You couldn't ask for a more spectacular way to finish off a day. 
with tense up, deep slumber ensures. But about 4 a.m., I am woken up by the flashes and cracking of the now approaching storm. Being such an unusual location, I just can't go back to sleep and have to take out the camera for some lightning photos, which makes some nice shots, but I spend most of the time just watching the lightning bolts zip across the sky and illuminate the clouds of different colours of greys and purples. And thankfully, the rain somehow stays away, so I get to see lightning with no rain, even better. And again, it's been probably one of the most interesting days and definitely one of the best places I think I've ever slept in my life. 13th of January. We wake up with a sound of quads and bikes from locals looking for a good advantage point. I cut a water bottle top off and fill it with cornflakes and add the long life milk I bought from the previous night. It's my first decent breakfast in two weeks. The sand here is closer to white than brown and the sky is blanketed with fluffy clouds colored blue and gray with the sun popping through here and there. So I'm happy with the setting and all I'm waiting for is the bikes and cars. In the desert, the waypoint, or the place the vehicles must go to get close to, is not as straightforward as it sounds. Unlike a road or river crossing, you know the spot that they will pass. In the high dunes, or the flat areas of the sand, it's a bit trickier to navigate on foot, so it's a best guess thing. So as you can imagine, if you have to be within 100 meters of a, a point, or 50 meters even, a driver on sand dunes can go either side, and some, some, a lot of them actually do miss them because it is so difficult to navigate on these, um, to drive on the sand. Um, so it is very, very difficult to work, um, to work on. As I pick a spot, some come past me, some further away, and while it's hot, it's not unbearable. Some of the locals are telling us from the previous day the sand was 60 degrees, super hot. So today we seem to have got away with it a little bit. There is a spot which a lot of the bikes seem to get really close to, so I, seem, I stay there and hope for the best. Some do, some go at a bit of a distance, but overall it's a great day for shooting and as an experience. The cars take longer to arrive, so I and a few other accredited photographers gather. A Brazilian, a Bolivian, a Spaniard, a Belgian and me are all sharing stories and scatter to different places when we hear the approaching roar of engines, then we come back together to talk. After the impressive leading trucks come through, we have enough of the leaders from each category, so we get back on the rock-hard race seats of our 4x4 and go for the three-hour drive to La Rioja. The roads are fairly straight and smooth, so I can start editing in the car. It's not ideal as Photoshop needs a steady hand, but I get the ball rolling and when we arrive at the older racetrack we call home for the next few hours, I plug in the Ethernet cable and get out the important images first. Another hour and a half of editing and it's done. I clean my kit, clean myself, a quick bite, change the bandage with my friends down at the medical center for my uh, aching toe. And uh, four hours after we arrive, we are back in the 4x4 for another three and a half hour drive. Tomorrow, we are in another valley, a dusty track between walls of rock. Our destination is a hotel of the below one star type this time, with three bunk beds and a single bed. Again, I select the top bunk. As I opened the discolored and very well used covering blanket, I find a thin white sheet so worn it's almost transparent and a big yellow orange stain right near the pillow. Disgusting. The pillowcase is too small, 
revealing a light gray beaten vintage pillow that I'm afraid to touch, let alone sleep on. I moved to another top bunk in slightly better condition, but not by much, but it will have to do as these are the only beds available. The hours um, on the road in the heat make quick work of my waking moments and I slip into a coma, but not before setting my alarm for 5.30 a.m. The last thing I see is your alarm is set for three hours and 46 minutes from now. 14th of January. As soon as the alarm fires, tired as I am, I get out, I should say leap out of that dirty bunk bed, even forgetting about my toe for a second. Um, Then we go for breakfast in the hotel. Well, I I shouldn't really call it hotel. I should call it dive. And the 30-minute wait for breakfast is not worth it. A few pieces of toast, butter, and marmalade. A less than five-hour stay in a hotel, and this place is memorable for all the wrong reasons. Getting to the photo point is about an hour away, and on this section of track close to the public, Pablo and Danny leave us there, um, and due to my injury again, I carry the basic cameras and lenses. Two bodies, three lenses, remote triggers, tripod, snack bars, and of course water. Uh, Felipe has a radio, and we walk down the track to find a spot to set up. I'm walking through another sort of canyon or valley, Walls, maybe 100 meters high on either side. Very layered, millions of years of layers of sediment built up either side. A dirt road, walking along it, and this is a photo point on the 14th. I'm guessing I'm not. I've lost track of days completely, but I think it's the 14th. And normally with these kind of very picturesque. It's uh, fairly early in the morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, usually at this time you'll see a lot of other photographers um, and locals, like uh, if you've uh, listened to any of the podcasts already or if you've just jumped ahead to here, but if you've uh, listened to it, you'll find, you'll hear that there's pretty much been local people with barbecues and, and you know, party festi- festive moods everywhere you've gone, and here... Silence. <laughs> Nobody. If you can hear there's some footsteps walking towards me now, that's Felipe. So there's only the two of us. Felipe, we're finally alone. Uh-huh. You know, the Wait. ground is cracked. Yeah. So this sounds like it could be... <laughs> a, <laughs> could be like a... In the winter, it's maybe part of it. It's like a river, river, riverbed, I'd guess. And now it's just all dried and cracked surface. Look, there was a, there was another road over there. There was a car parked in there. Oh, was there? Yeah. Okay, so we're not alone. Um, I would suggest we keep here, here somewhere nearby. Just in case the bikes go up that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, uh, once we get get the first one. Yeah. see from which way they're coming yeah and then we can walk back this way where there's yeah. no light pole no uh, yeah. electricity poles yep. to ruin our photos sorry I'm not very descriptive in my uh, with my language hence I'm a photographer not a writer and the only thing I can describe this as is if you took away all the the scattering of dried bushes and shrubs you'd sort of have more of a 
moon or Mars style landscape, rocky, um, sort of the, the mountains or the walls that have sort of been forced out of the ground, sort of pushing up on a 45 degree angle and you can actually see that it's actually it looks quite fragile as well it's not uh it's not like hard solid rock it looks actually looks more like mud that'd probably be the like a really dry mud and if if i walk up to it which i am now with my uh big feet and i step on it you can see that it doesn't take much to sort of peel it away But uh, the sky is blue, perfect, not a cloud around. And uh, like I said, it's actually so much nicer not to have any other photographers around and, or any other people. But um, yeah, hopefully today's a good shoot. There's lots of shadows coming through, you know, piercing through the, the side walls, so... There's plenty to work with here, much better than the flat riverbeds and uh, long straight roads that uh, can get a bit tiring after a, a few vehicles, a few bikes or cars walk past, uh, ride past you. So this is um, this could be a bit more fun today. We find a spot and wait. A couple hours in and still no bikes. Then Pablo and Danny come walking around the corner. Leaving car on the main road, they walk down through a gap in the large walled valley so we can leave without waiting for all the vehicles to go through. And with these roads so narrow um, in certain sections, I think it would have been way too dangerous for um, us to leave the, the our um, 4x4 there and then, you know, drive out between the bikes and cars. It was just, it was too dangerous. So they you know luckily enough found a good spot to park outside the track and then could walk in and to find us and you've got to remember too that these drivers are waiting for us to work you know which is sometimes you know obviously hours and hours so it's quite a novelty for them as well to watch the race and uh, even help us out with the occasional um, remote placing or um, person to pre-focus on as well as we where we think the bikes will be tenderly i climb to a vantage point to put my remote camera up as I'm going for the small bike at the bottom of the frame, showing the larger landscape and will shoot the tighter, longer lens from the shadows. I'll be 100 meters away on the ground as the bikes approach. The first, second and third bikes all come through in quick succession. Then I collect my elevated camera remote and will shoot the rest of the pilots and landscapes between here and our exit to the 4x4. In a place like this, it's not too difficult to find a great landscape or dark shadow to make nice images. We walk and stop and shoot and walk and stop and shoot through the winding, dusty and rocky roads using the lines and peaks of the dry, crumbling rock faces as backgrounds for the images. I think about climbing up to elevated positions, but while it looks solid, sometimes your foot goes straight through the soft rock that's at the bottom of these some 50 to 100 meter high rock faces and the thought of me being up high with my equipment on such an unstable surface especially with my injured toe um, is a risk not worth taking i'm sure if i fell from one of these places my toe would be the least of my worries so for three hours we um, walk stop shoot moving slowly through the valleys 
These are locations I love and are far beyond what I ever hoped to work with when I started on my career path. From the distance, I hear the helicopter usually means that the first cars are coming and sometimes other photographers. It comes and goes, then about 20 minutes later, I see some people walking towards us. It's the other big agency photographers from AFP, Reuters, AP, uh, L'Equipe, and the DPPI guys who all arrive in by chopper. They have seen the spots that um, from overhead that we were shooting in and got dropped off and walked into the valleys. We talk, shoot, and then keep moving while they walk back to the places we have already been. Felipe and I don't have the luxury of a TV helicopter on these journeys, so we only travel by road. Um, and apart from that one day where we did have the military chopper, which was great fun, like I mentioned, um, so they get to pick and choose multiple locations every day. Each corner, though here, throws up a different shot, so it's a great spot overall. The leading trucks start to come through, and we are very close to our exit point. It's very hot, very, very hot, and we're hungry. My foot is very sore, but the pictures make up for that. One shot I like is a bike riding through dark shadows, only exposed to a slither of sunlight, which I, which I have put again on my Twitter page. So we've finished here, and now we are walking through this uh, smaller, tighter valley, just the, um, to our 4x4. Consuming a lot of water, we get back into our rock-hard seats again, and it's two hours of rough roads and then two hours of windy, hilly driving. And then we get back to the Bivovac. I send a few more images than normal, around 140 pictures from the day because of the setting. Clean up, of course. Visit my friends at the local medical tent, who are as great as ever for a new bandage and a quick cup of soup from the food tent. And then we are on the road again. This time, it's a five-hour drive to the next photo point. As you've gathered by now, this journey through the Argentinian and Bolivian countryside is an epic adventure. I do some editing and writing for this podcast, but it feels a shame to keep my head in a laptop all the while this exquisite Argentinian landscape passes without me seeing it. So until it's pitch black outside, I get to enjoy one of the major benefits of my career, seeing things I never imagined. At 1am, all four of us are lacking one decent meal for the day, so it's about 20 kilometers from tomorrow's photo point, and we find a village, which is not listed on our map for some reason, and we ask a local what it's called. My memory is shot then, as it is now. All I remember is that it's now near a team called Cerruela. Again, apologies. Um, this place, um, the only place open here at this little town is, is a truck stop. And the thing that I'll always remember about this town is the bugs. The lights above the fuel pumps swarm with flying insects and the ground and floor inside and outside the service station and the food area is teeming with bugs. They scurry around with intent yet lost at the same time. I think they look around, for, I think, anyway, from what I noticed from looking at so many of them, is they look to run from shadowed area to shadowed area. Because uh, uh, the only reason I say this is because I see one man who's paying for his fuel, and as he's talking to the man serving him behind the counter, he's talking for a few minutes, and um, as he does, he lifts one of his feet slightly up, and one bug runs, runs from a dark corner to the black spot underneath his foot. Um, and as the man leaves, unaware of this, of course, the bug doesn't know this will be his last dark place. 
We sit outside, use bug spray liberally, and agree to eat without looking in the kitchen. The empanadas, we joke, will have a special crunch to them. Food eaten, and believe me, the hunger that we was having, we had to eat something. We had to eat from this place. Um, food eaten, and not thinking about the conditions they were cooked in, we leave to camp for the night near the river. I get my tent ready before we leave the truck stop, knowing that Riverside, um, which wasn't too bad at the at the service station, but I'm sure Riverside, the mosquitoes will be there in force. Of course, it will be dark. So as we are, um, arrive at the Riverside after our uh, delicious uh, crunchy meal, it's pitch black. The allure to stare at the stars is beaten by the fear of bug attack. So as quick as we can, tents are up, and at 2 a.m., we hit, uh, we fall asleep. Oh, well, I fall asleep at 2 a.m. anyway, I did. Um, and the first bikes are due to arrive in six hours. 15th of January. A little river crossing turns out to be a nice place to sleep. January <sighs> camped right next to the photo point next to a river wake up to the sounds of locals of course it's before 7 o'clock in the morning first bike's not due till 9.40 and we already have fans here nice way to wake up Hunger has become a common theme on this trip, so it's a warm canned tuna pasta and a way too hot carton of orange juice for breakfast. Mm-mm. After my not so tasty brekkie, I get my kit together for the last day of shooting of action from the race. The river crossing is a small one and it's not long before other photographers in their 4x4s show up as this looks like the most interesting point given to us by the media Dakar people. Speaking to others, we are all tired and lacking a decent meal as each other. Our drivers move the 4x4 about 200 meters up the road near an exit that is not on the race course itself. Of course, that means we'll be able to get away um, anytime we want. It's a nice day with patches of white clouds speckled through the sky. Um, I set up a remote using the wide angle to show, um, to show this. As the first bike approaches at high speed, you hear it, the brakes applied heavily um, which is not a good thing usually when you're in the middle of a race. And it turns out that this section is a speed-controlled area, which we knew nothing about. This means that because of um, a potential danger, that the Dakar organizers have made certain sections which uh, you have to reduce your speed down to about 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers, or again, depending on what it is. This, of course, meant that there was no big water splash um, which we were—that's the shot we were looking for. Obviously, being near, near a river, um, and it looks like the riders are just going out for a Sunday stroll, not the high-intensity and wild race the Dakar is. So, having walked around the surrounding surrounding areas before they arrived, this is a boring location. 
I decide to shoot the leaders as best I can, um, shooting the leading quads, then wait for the cars. Hopefully, even with the reduced speed, they will give the effect that the bikes could not. With an hour before the first car first car is due, I walk back to our 4x4 where Pablo and Danny are fast asleep in their seats. I get into the confined space in the back um, as it's stinking hot outside and the boys have got their uh, air conditioning running and start to work on my computer, mainly to write up to keep track of my podcast notes for this, for this podcast because like I mentioned, uh, lack of sleep, uh, days are blurring. I will say though, And uh, even though my boss, hello again, Steve, if you're listening, about 30 minutes into writing, unaware or without notice, I pass out, falling asleep with my hands on my laptop, only to wake to the sound of a screaming mini um, driving past my windscreen. It arrived earlier than expected, but I will say it again, even if it had arrived when it should have, I don't think I would have uh, woken up. So I jump out and make sure I don't miss another car going past. I set up the remote and again, the cars come through and I go head on with the 7200 to shoot tight on the cars hitting the water, which actually works surprisingly well. Because of the um, size of the cars and the uh, small amount of water, it makes actually a fairly large splash. It also allows me to see the car um, get an impact of the water hitting the car because sometimes if there's too much water, as soon as the car touches the water, there is so much water splash that all you get is splash. So um, driving, uh, I shoot the first 20 liters of the cars and then uh, um, with approximately five hours to the next bivouac, the drive is on again. The rock hard seats and the restricted leg movement from the larger, safer roll cage is taking its toll on me. So occasionally I get the guys just to stop the car so I can try and walk it off. It's another pit stop at the bivouac in Villa Carlos Paz. I'm sure that pronunciation actually was the most accurate one because it's the most simple. For the usual edit, send, clean up, medical tent visit, but no food this time as we have another six-hour drive to our final official photo point near Rua Cuarto. The edit does not take as long today as I don't have many images I'm happy with, mainly due to the lack of bike and quad action. I guess, like you noticed from listening already, that's the Dakar. One great day. The next day, not so, but again, each day is different. That's a guarantee. The drive, again, serves up mountain ranges, farm fields, small villages lined with people sitting on deck chairs watching the world pass, and I switch my gaze from my laptop to the world flashing past my window. We get close to our planned campsite and stop for some food. My hopes for a decent meal are met. A small, quaint Bolivian restaurant in the heart of a small village called Las Higueras. Apart from the stray dogs walking up hoping for some scrap food off us, it's a great place. Service and food are top-notch. The art, tables, plates, presentation are wonderful and I could see this place being a big success in a place like London or Paris. Of course, we get empanadas as a starters as they are tasty and delicious. It's a welcome break, especially after the food that we've had over the last few days. Once the food is done, we track down the end of the stage in a fenced-off military base where we'll have the winners of each category arrive, so we set up our tents about 100 metres away from the finish line. It's almost 3am, and the final day is almost upon us. The first bikes are due at 8am, not even five hours um, after we go to sleep. 16th of Jan. 
Refreshed in knowing that the end of the Dakar is near, I spring out of my pop-up tent and it's a hot, clear day. Other people have camped near us in the few hours since we set up camp. I start to organize my stuff in the, from the 4x4, which I have called home for the last two weeks. Dust and mud line everything I have brought with me. Canis Service Center will be getting my full kit for a clean when I get back. No remotes needed today, so I pack the handy lenses of the 2470 and the 7200 for the arrivals of all the remaining pilots and put the 24mm and the 50mm in the think tank shoulder bag for some different look image once, once the initial chaos dies down. I also take out the flash out of the bag for the first time. The riders who finish the race come through, some more beaten than others, but all happy to finish this grueling epic journey. And you can see by the look on their face how relieved a lot of these, especially the riders, obviously, because you can see with the helmets and the and the the relief that they have is is it's a very emotional place actually. The crowds of of course in force are there cheering, riders embrace each other, knowing how emotional this uh, an emotional time it is. I'm surrounded by maybe thirty bikes and quads and don't really know where to look. For most of these pilots, I only know by their numbers and colors, not their faces. So as I shoot them, I take a quick picture of their bike or quad number so I can ID them later. The leading quads come through and two Argentinian brothers have come in first and second. The crowd sing their name and Marcos, the winner, breaks down and starts to cry as his brother embraces him. It's a nice moment, maybe ruined by a TV journalist trying to stick a massive microphone in his, in his face as he attempts to gain his composure. The brothers then stand up on their quads with an Argentinian flag and the home support is delighted. I have a black bib along with the other big agencies like AFP and Reuters, but all the planning and discuss, earlier discussions about what will happen goes out the window and it's a free-for-all, pushing and shoving, elbows out, and I feel like I'm playing Aussie rules footy fighting for a loose ball on the ground. I don't like it. And the reason I say that is we had a black bib. It, the, the black bib is um, the agencies get sort of, well, in theory anyway, should have a preference. So because we have more uh, access, uh, more coverage, more customers, the Dakar organizing committee say, okay, well, these people should have the best uh, position for the arrivals. Um, but again, like I said, there were six of us lined up uh, maybe six or seven lined up of us uh, waiting, you know, maybe 20 meters away from the where the quads, bikes, cars would stop. Um, but then again, as soon as that first quad stops, everyone just runs forward and doesn't matter how many Dakar people were there trying to stop them, try to stop TV crew and photographers from getting their photos. It's a um, it's a thankless task, so no chance. So it just became it just became too much of a fight, which again I don't like. The other photographers that I know with, like I said, the black bib guy, the black bib uh, wearing photographers, we are very civil and we all respect in, um, each other, of course, in general. But for some reason, when someone holds up a flag or a pilot shows some emotion, all bets are off and they decide that this is the most important photo in the world and they don't care who they have to get on to step uh, or who they have to step on to get it. So... Peter Hansel from the Peugeot team is announced the winner and 20 um, TV and photographers rush to his opening door. Call it what you want um, and I'll say it straight out, I refuse to be part of this fight. <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, I think it's an average picture firstly, and then pushing someone out of the way to get a photo is not the way I was taught and not the way I am. So pretty much everyone runs to the side and then I decide, you know what, I'm just going to stand at the front. So I pretty much stand with my knees leaning on um, in the middle of the grill, you know, in between the headlights at the front of the car and I'm the only one standing there. Of course, I know from previous experience that in a few seconds, he'll most likely stand on the car. And of course, what does he do? He does. He gets out, pushes the photographers and TV that are at his door out of the way, stands on top of the car, and then of course, all the people that are on the side of the car run and try to push me out of the way. And for for once, it's my turn now. Elbows out, I stand my ground, Um, the co-pilot and a Peugeot director come out and celebrate right in front of me. And again, I think it was a much better picture of getting these three celebrating right in front of me on top of the car, much better than a man gets out of car and uh, tries to push his way out. Again, the pandemonium continues, um, especially for uh, number 12 uh, on the motorbikes. Leia Sainz, uh, the only female motorbike participant who came in 15th overall, and I think she got 7th, I think, from memory. I can't remember, but if you if you follow the race, you'll know. She did uh, better last year, but, you know, obviously having a, a female rider who's so, so competitive is a, is a major, um, major attraction for a lot of the media. So pandemonium ensued. Interviews, TV... Surrounded by first, second, and third cars, the big Peugeot 302, Peter Hansel, French guy, one, French uh, driver and co-driver, um, NASA, the um, Qatari, came second, and we think the Toyota third. It's all to be confirmed still, but I'm just going to take a guess because they're on the first, second, and third placings, but that's the way it looks like it's come. Everyone's being interviewed by TV. And uh, Fox Sports of uh, sticking microphones in everyone's faces. Hey, Felipe, how's it going? Right. Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Felipe's sweating quite a lot. <laughs> and Frank? Frank from AFP, how was it? Yeah, it's good. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for those kind <laughs> words. Uh, once the cars leave, uh, the truck... The trucks come in and things die down a bit. Not as much interest for some reason in the trucks. Uh, for me, I, I, I like the trucks, so I stay around and obviously shoot them. And I get the 24mm and the 50mm uh, lens out. Um, for photos, I can compose a bit better. Because you're not sort of scruffling around and a bit close, a bit further away, um, you can focus a bit more on getting a good picture, clean background and all that kind of thing. And these lenses, the 24 and the 50, uh, allow me to do that. So the first, second, third places are now in for each category. The media tent, which is nearby, has my computer ready for editing and sending the day's work. Of course, I get out the main people first, as we uh, as we do at the agencies. We have to move, you know, the first, second, third, and obviously the bigger countries. Bigger countries, I'll say that with, uh, uh, you know, the Germans and the Americans and all that kind of thing. So um, I tried my best uh, to get as clean a shot as possible as well because the backgrounds is mainly made up of organization buses, tents, sponsors' flags, which don't really add anything to the pictures. So most of the time I was dropping to my knee, um, to my aching knees, um, to use the, the blue sky as a background. And overall, I was fairly happy with how clean my shoot was. Um, for my German listeners, 
um, and firm, former guest Lars Barron and Alexander Hashenstein, who always complains about my sound quality, um, listen to one of your countrymen being interviewed. Alles in allem etwas enttäuschend und trotzdem bin ich froh, dass wir noch den dritten Platz haben retten können mit unserem Hilux. Du stehst ja auf ein bewegliches Ziel. Du verbesserst deinen Toyota und die anderen. Ihr macht einen Schritt, die anderen machen zwei Schritte. Ja, das, das Auto ist nicht zuverlässig, also dafür schon meine ich jetzt. Aber ja, also ich würde nicht sagen, dass wir eingemacht haben, die anderen zwei. Wir haben einen guten Schritt gemacht. Wenn ich jetzt, also unsere Messlatte war der Mini, bei dem sind wir dicht dran. Was uns fehlt, ist einfach die Leistung. Das Drehmoment sowieso liegt im Konzept und auf der Höhe haben wir einfach keine Chance. Ich meine, das Rennen Federico Coyote Viagra, the third placed truck driver, is cheered for by his fans here. Drivers Pablo and Danny um, both look to Felipe and uh, are asking when we will be heading to Rosario, the final stop in our Dakar adventure. My main images are done, and an hour later, back in the 4x4 after this uh, chaotic morning of uh, photography. Um, we're back in these rock-hard seats for the last trip as a foursome. It's uh, only five or six hours to go to the last bivouac, and I do some more writing as uh, the last four days have got away from me a little bit, but spend most of the time just looking out of the window, watching the fans, Dakar bikes, quads, cars, and trucks who are driving to the same place on the road or even stopping to take photos of their vehicles because as you can understand you know they've been so busy racing over the last two weeks that they really haven't maybe done as many uh selfies and uh, stuff as they would have liked as well so they're doing the tourist thing as well um, every traffic light though we stopped or every town that we um, stop at is filled with fans asking to take pictures or asking for hats or t-shirts of of course i only have a full bag of dirty laundry and dusty clothes a couple of hours out and we stop at one of the nicest restaurants we have for a well-earned last meal together. We raise our glasses of non-alcoholic drinks in celebration of the mini adventure we have just been through together. Back in the car and the landscape switches from mountains to hills to flat farms. We arrive in Rosario in the bivouac at an old racetrack but don't even enter. Felipe has sorted out a taxi driver and taken us direct to Buenos Aires. We have to wait two hours for Felipe's colleague, the FA writer, who was at the finish line, um, like, like we were, taking the photos of the people crossing the line, and obviously he was doing all the interviews and, and written text for the largest Spanish agency in the world. Unlike us who had a vehicle, he has been traveling with a Dakar media bus. So um, we had to wait there around for him, which was fine, no problem. It's always nice to just uh, stop not being on the run for a bit. But once he gets there, all our bags and kit are crammed into a small Citroën taxi. Felipe and I are in the back seat with two large bags between us. And uh, looking at each other, we uh, smile and both think at the same time, we've been squashed in the 4x4, and now we're squashed into this, uh, still traveling like a pack of sardines after the, all these uh, all these weeks. Um, the drive is just over three hours in the taxi, which as soon as it hits 100 kilometers, or 60 miles for my American and uh, or UK friends, 60 miles on the freeway, it rattles like a tin can full of nuts and bolts. 
The thought of getting as far as we have through two huge countries covering 9,000 kilometers and then crashing in this piece of crap car taxi does cross my mind more than once. And obviously, it's not a good, <laughs> it's not a good, uh, not a good thought to be having when, you know, last stretch, you don't want to be having an accident in this crappy cab. Part of the reason for doing this uh, podcast was also as a reminder for myself because in previous years, I really haven't sort of kept a diary or anything and the days blur so quickly, um, you know, when you're sleeping so little, eating so little and just seeing so many amazing things that it's very, very difficult to keep track of it in your own head. So um, this was as much for me to keep a, a, a record of as it was for um, for my listeners to sort of get an idea of how it all works. So I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've liked uh, recording it and, and keeping a record of it. Um, I will add, um, I'm not afraid to say that uh, this trip had some very scary moments, like almost being run down by a car and then a truck in the desert, or sliding too close to um, one of those cliff uh, drops that I mentioned in the high mountains of Bolivia, um, near the border there. Um, so yeah, many places on treacherous roads, you know, there was too, we saw way too many shrines, you know, little crosses and, and, and flowers and things like that, you know, it was set up in memory of people who have died on these very dangerous roads. So, you know, this, it, it's a, it's a very serious and, uh, very dangerous, uh, race to compete in, uh, and cover. So, um, yeah. And, you know, colleagues from, um, from Red Bull, um, hit a cow in the middle of the night at 120 kilometers an hour. And in another separate incident, the same guys had rolled a 4x4 off the road. So, you know, and and, uh, a few years ago, my first year in doing this in 2014, a group of journalists had died in a car crash between bivouacs. You know, the feeling of exploration and the stunning images, I'll remember this forever sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, there's that element of danger. It it can be quite scary. Um, So another thing uh, I wanted to mention before I uh, finish up here one of the things that stood out for me was once we were in the taxi um, was the waving, a, a thing that sort of stood out. As soon as I got in the cab, I kept looking at people and, you know, on the side of the roads and was w- sort of ready, you know, like I had been over the last two weeks to wave back like I had, like I said, for the last 16 days. But in this beaten uh, black and yellow Citroen, it was back to being a person that no one wanted to say hello to really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the airport and check-in flight, you know, yawn all boring stuff so yeah Dakar was over for another year photography philosophy listeners out there in podcast land what did you think did you understand my ramblings if this made sense to you and you made it this far into the show is this what the you thought the Dakar would be I'm pretty sure I will not be covering it next year for a few reasons but once it starts I'm sure I will miss the images it produces as they are some of my favorite from the year for those of you that like a tweet or two, my Twitter handle is at AllSportsSnapper. It has a selection of images taken at the Dakar, of course, and my website, AllSportsSnapper.com, will have links to uh, YouTube videos and slideshows with some of my favorite images, as well as some how I shot events, like a golf tournament and a boxing uh, fight night that I recorded as well. So if anyone's interested, there's some interesting stuff on there for some sports photographer people um the getty images sports twitter handle has just put up a slideshow of mine which runs for a whole 20 seconds um, of some of my favorite images from the dakar apparently 
these days, no one can concentrate for more than 20 seconds on anything. So um, for those of you that can, um, I will have a link to a longer slideshow as well as the shorter one from my uh, Dakar Odyssey. Links to my best images uh, from the Getty Images site will also be in the show notes. If possible, I would appreciate if you could give me a couple minutes of your time to write a review on iTunes. A few people have, so thank you very much to those people. Much appreciated. And you can also subscribe to there or on SoundCloud. Feedback, retweets, emails, all welcomed. Next show, I will be back to normal. Um, some people might like that, some might not. Um, with an interview uh, in which do I speak to another top, top class photographer, a Scotsman who has covered sport for over 25 years. Last thing, observe, listen and practice because your best photo could be one photo.